Um, hello, welcome um, to the this martial arts studies conference. This is the eighth iteration. This is the eighth um, annual conference. We started in 2015 in Cardiff, and it, it felt like kind of a big deal um, because at that time. In the English language, there wasn't really um, anything that we would call martial arts studies. Um, there were plenty of academic studies of martial arts in different disciplines. Um, if you did a, like a literature review, if you did a library search, you'd find all sorts of, of weird, of weird and wacky stuff. But it was all kind of disconnected. And one of the aims of it was to, to bring um, researchers from different disciplines and different fields together, working in the English language, other languages, other countries and cultures have this or something similar um, and we I feel like we've kind of we have made a field um, we've made a, a kind of community we've made a disciplinary discourse interdisciplinary discourse through the this conference through the journal uh, there's lots of other journals that have, have sprung up as well of course um, and I think that um, I feel like the academic world is better for it. I think that we're in a, you know, the, <laughs> the type of stuff that people are saying about martial arts is better, and that makes me happy. Um, and um, I just wanted to, to sort of talk about that briefly because it, it's all, it is all about networking. You can be an isolated researcher, and we all know there's some wacky, crazy stuff written about martial arts. If you don't connect up with other people, um, and, and what they're saying and what they're doing. Um, and we all connect up here and we communicate and we, we grow, right? Um, and we were enabled, I think, quite significantly by a, a research grant that I've got, an Arts and Humanities Research Council grant, which enabled us to fund some stuff. Cause, and I think that's really helpful. Um, and I wanted to mention that because Wayne has just got a, a very important pot of money from... Um, what's known as the White Rose Consortium, and that's the, the universities of, of Yorkshire. It's just Yorkshire, isn't it? Um, and it's a kind of network. And Wayne has um, just got some money to set up, hopefully, a, a kind of postgraduate or early career researcher network, specifically according to Wayne's interests and the department that he works in, which is East Asian Studies and Film Studies specifically, um, we haven't discussed how you want to pronounce the, the acronym, because he wants to call it the Asian Martial Arts Film Studies Research Network, which is kind of... AMAFS. AMAFS. We'll think about that. Yeah. Uh, got, <laughs> we might need some fine-tuning. So we've... We've, we've, got, <laughs> we've got to be careful, right? So we have a special session on the Friday, the last parallel session. Uh, it's... Initially, it was going to be for PhDs, but it could be from anyone who's at a White Rose Yorkshire University, any PhD student or, or any um, early career researcher. And I want to say in advance that all of anything good that happens at this conference, you want to thank Wayne. This guy has worked tirelessly. Um, He's done an amazing job, um, and uh, it, it's, it's going to be wonderful. Can you help us get this, yeah. get this set up? Um, okay, everyone, so um, the first 
um, speaker that we have is Professor Lawrence Steimer from the University of South Carolina. Um, and she is the author of this book, Experts um, in Action Transnational Hong Kong Style Stunt Work and Performance. She lives and breathes the stunt industry. Um, if you are lucky enough to be a Facebook friend, she's just constantly, constantly searching for this. Um, and she's in cars and stunt drivers are driving around and she's in studios and she's constantly researching this. And then th this book is, um, well, it has endorsements by Megan Morris. So um, it, must, it must be good, right? And it's due. She's also, um, when, I, when I learned the name of the sports teams at the University of South Carolina, I was like, please, please, you have to bring me, bring me some swag. So, um, but, but, but Lauren has gone kind of slightly away from her, her brand for this talk and will be um, talking about the legal afterlives of um, the dead Bruce Finn, right? So, Lauren, please. Yes. Excellent. Because okay. I put one. Yeah. There. Okay. Excellent. Thank you. Thank you, everybody. So um, first, an apology. Uh, I, normally, so much of my work uh, that is um, all on stunts uh, is, uh, has a lot of detailed martial arts analysis and content in it. This doesn't, which is really a shame at this conference. But uh, I promise you, it's, uh, it's relevant in any case. Um, so today I am uh, presenting the new and improved Dead Bruce Lee, The Legal Afterlives of a Martial Arts Celebrity. This conference rightly commem commemorates the half century since Bruce, Bruce Lee's death, and in doing so has organized a collection of fascinating presentations on Bruce Lee's influence on martial arts cultures and communities via his work on screen, through his philosophical publications, and in response to his public persona. This first paper departs from this framework in assuming that many of us are familiar with Lee's films, interviews, and writing produced during his lifetime to inquire what kind of work has dead Bruce Lee been doing in the last 50 <coughs> years? This question stems from Jacques Derrida's proposition in his 1975 life-death lectures that life and death are not oppositional constructs, nor is death a framing mechanism to measure life's accomplishments, but instead that death creates life as it prompts a reflective, analytical process about life as a series of representations. The result of this process is a curatorial practice in tune with Derrida's larger project on inheritance. Derrida affirms that the heir to any philosophical tradition must contend with, filter, differentiate, and restructure the bequeathed object to ratify the living part, i.e., to keep it alive. I incorporate Derrida's thoughts on life, death, and inheritance here for three reasons. One, as a framework for much of the analytical work of this conference, organized around the life of Bruce Lee, itself a series of selective representations, but framed by the 50 years since his death. Two, as a philosophical backdrop to Shannon Lee's own inheritance project, in which she filters, differentiates, and restructures representations of Bruce Lee, to not simply ratify the living object, but to monetize it. And three, because some ad attendees at conferences like a bit of theory with their conference papers, and others prefer to tune it out. <laughs> For those of you in the latter category, you'll be happy to know that the painful part is over now. <laughs> in 1953, oh, wait, 
There we go. In 1953, 20 years before Bruce Lee, that I think that this is the wrong presentation. I'm so sorry. Uh, give me a second. Sorry. That's okay. Sorry. <coughs> no, I can. In 1953, 20 years before Bruce Lee died, American legal philosopher and judge Jerome Frank, an advocate for civil liberties, coined the phrase the right of publicity as an inverse corollary to the right to privacy. In Halen Labs Incorporated versus Topps Chewing Gum, the people who make baseball cards in the US, Judge Frank ruled that a person had the right to control and monetize their own image. However, New York and California courts ruled that the right to publicity only extended to the living and was not descendable. This meant that the families of dead celebrities did not inherit the right to publicity and therefore had no claims on how their relative's name, image, or likeness were used. When Bruce Lee died in 1973, none of his surviving family members had any say in using, selling, or circulating his image. The studios that owned Lee's films retained the related rights to any stills, audio, and publicity material. Four years later, the US Supreme Court formally ruled codifying the right to publicity nationally. Lawyer Roger Richman <coughs> established the first celebrity licensing and marketing agency in California a year later. His agency would also be among the first to market dead celebrities or D-Lebs. This practice became prof, yep, D-Lebs. This practice, you're gonna get used to that term, I promise you. But this practice became profitable after the 1985 California Celebrity Rights Act, also known as the Astaire Celebrity Image Protection Act. It restricted the unauthorized use of any natural person whose name, voice, signature, photograph, or likeness has a commercial value at the time of his or her death without the authorization of the deceased celebrity's family. These rights initially lasted 50 years from the time of a person's death, so they would be over, right? And the period has since been extended to 70 years, 20 more years of dead mistake. There were three means by which post-mortem rights of publicity, post-mortem right of publicity is utilized and defended. One, through deal-making with commercial enterprises, a process called celebrity necromarketing. Yep. Two, through lawsuits against license infringements. And when a lawsuit is impossible, three, through public complaints and personal attacks. Shortly after the 1985 decision, Lee's family sold his rights to General Electric Universal Studios, who assumed they might be useful at some point. Mostly they sold t-shirts at their theme parks. Universal held on to many D-Lab rights at the time and did not make a concerted <coughs> effort to distinguish dead Bruce Lee's personality, nor did they actively litigate infractions on their rights. Shannon Lee purchased her father, Bruce Lee's name, image, and likeness rights back from Universal Studios and formed a management company in 2008. She was disappointed with what she perceived as Universal Studios' lack of initiative in policing and managing her father's personality rights. She created Bruce Lee Enterprises, BLE, to manage her father's personality rights 
and formed a second company for film and television productions called Lee Way Media Group. Ms. Lee rebranded the BruceLee.com website and moved BLE operations to California because of the state's hardline defense of DLab rights. In preparation for this move, she self-educated on the personality rights management of posthumous stars by consulting with the estates of Elvis Presley and John Wayne. When managed correctly, DLab rights can be a multi-million dollar income stream for rights holders and is an industry conservatively valued at 2.25 billion or uh, US or 1.75 billion pounds. DLab deals convert a collection of carefully managed qualities into, onto secondary brand associations. Conversely, DLab lawsuits restrict the use of a dead celebrity's personality rights to maximize control over the characteristics associated with the DLab's brand. It is obvious why any descendant of a celebrity would like to have their relative's name, image, and likeness rights. Still, additional factors make Miss Lee's efforts worthy of analysis. While Dead Elvis brings in over $50 million, 39 million pounds annually, Bruce Lee does not even make the top 20 earners list in the US DLEB market. However, there are two attributes associated with Dead Bruce Lee, which make him a more desirable commodity. Calculable premium demographic appeal and international marketability. The marketing value of live celebrities is measured in multiple markets by Q-score ratings. Q-scores are calculated from survey data to assess a celebrity's recogni recognizability and likeness. Those are the two categories. Do you know who this person is? Do you like this person? <laughs> the two scores are combined for a total number out of 100. For an example that doesn't age well, Bill Cosby had a Q-score of 70 during the 1980s, one of the highest on record at that time. This was the height of the Cosby Show era. This was also a time when you could not watch primetime American television without seeing Cosby selling Jell-O pudding pops, a highly profitable series of commercials for the actor, which was secured by his Q-score. Will Smith was the first African-American actor to break into the Q-score top 10 post-Cosby. Indeed, uh, we all lived through this period, or I assume many of us did, uh, in which he seemed to, Will Smith seemed to be in everything. That was because of his Q-score. Tom Cruise, also very high Q-score. Um, <clears throat> it, it is a nearly insurmountable task for celebrities of color to make it into the Q-score top 10. D-Labs have their own data analytics system called Dead Q-Scores. And the racial dynamics follow a similar pattern. As expected, Bruce Lee is not in the Dead Q-Score top 10. Still, he rates relatively <coughs> high on knowability and uh, very high on likability with the most desired international demographic, 18 to 34 year olds. This is remarkable because the DLEB market is presumed to operate on nostalgia and pull strongest with aging baby boomers who are assumed to be the key DLEB demographic. Most DLEB content is designed for first baby boomers and as a secondary market, Generation X consumers. Neither of these markets is economically valued as highly by advertisers. Paradoxically, that means that for many of us at this conference, Dead Bruce Lee is not made for us. The second unique element of Dead Bruce Lee's marketability is his transnational appeal. Miss Lee is working with DLEB management company Corpus Corporation's Greenlight, 
David Reeder, the vice president of Greenlight, has argued that Deb Bruce Lee is, quote, truly a global icon, and there aren't many of those around, probably 30, 40 of those people that really resonate in the American market. Reader explains that only five or so D-Lebs are marketable internationally. The top three are Michael Jackson, Muhammad Ali, and Bruce Lee. The unspoken element here is that Lee is the only one in the top five who is marketable in China. His ability to break into the China market makes dead Bruce Lee inherently more valuable than most other D-Lebs. Bruce Lee Enterprises is actively, uh, is actively invested in commercializing dead Bruce Lee in the US, UK, Europe, and Asian markets. It is much more aggressive in its international litigation of publicity rights infringement than many other DLEB rights holders. They are actively trying to craft new personas for dead Bruce Lee. This is because the Greenlight management firm is entirely in alignment with Peter Mikulas and Lukasz uh, Wyczykowski's assessment of how to manage a DLEB prop, uh, property best. The area of advertising shall not be understood as being autonomous or isolated. On the contrary, it is deeply associated with the overall activity of celebrity, deliberty, deliberties in culture. Brand and product support help not only to transfer, transfer commercial messages, but secondly, also offer values related to celebrities, deliberties, such as cultural values, social influence, constructions of social reality, etc. To any cultural studies scholars in this audience, this assumption is second nature and well, yeah, of course. Bruce Lee Enterprises guide dead Bruce Lee's marketability in only the most abstract sense. While it is clear that Shannon Lee is actively involved with Greenlight's negotiation process, the official BLE mission statement on their goals is fundamentally and likely intentionally vague as to their goals from, uh, for brand alignment. Bruce Lee. LLC is a global licensing business and one of the Bruce Lee family companies. It uh, seeks to cultivate and respect the intellectual property of Bruce Lee. Let's see if they cultivate and respect. Watch, watch my clips. The, the intellectual property of Bruce Lee by partnering with companies who understand and embody Bruce Lee's values. What are these? I'd love to know. <laughs> the products and content we create seek to open hearts, stimulate imagination, and make us feel connected to one another through the cultivation of our individual talents, t-shirts, selling iced tea, video games. In doing this, we look for partners who can inspire and energize us, who can create emotional experiences, not just products, who use superlative quality and have creative mastery in their field, and who are open-minded, kind, and down-to-earth. You can feel that's heartfelt, and, and Shannon <laughs> probably had a role in that. It's also not copy edited, and um, it's absolute BS, but um, it's, it's, a, it's lovely sentiment. All right. Um, I challenge any in attendance to find elements of, from this statement in any of the examples of brand partnership I will show you. Since reacquiring the postmortem publicity rights, BLE has paired with Pepsi Cola to sell iced tea to 18 to 34 year olds. Okay. Uh, Pepsi rebranded its iced teas as brisk to make tea drinking appear less sedative to younger consumers. This commercial does much to advance that message as it demonstrates that while Bruce Lee could easily do away with a pile of sumo wrestlers, 
the Karate Kid and Mr. Miyagi would have defeated him if not for the caffeinated intensity delivered by a can of Lipton brisk iced tea. This commercial was made in 2008, and during that period, advertising research had shown that the upper end of the 18 to 34-year-old demographic was much more responsive to advertising that broke the fourth wall through intertextual jokes. Uh, this is also one of the things that animated some of the comedy in the TV show 30 Rock. I want to comment on the choreography, but there's little to say here. The Karate Kid's crane stance is, of course, reminiscent of the first film in that series. Lee's trademark yells and dynamic posturing recall his fights from Enter the Dragon. What I find much more interesting is the choice to use intentionally mismatched dubbing to interpolate English-speaking consumers who are familiar with that technique from the transnational circulation of Hong Kong martial arts films on television in the 1980s, after the Shaws decided their film collections were worth more as licensed content to US and UK consumers. But how does this align with BLE's mission statement? Not quite sure. Recently, BLE has licensed Dead Bruce Lee to video game designers. These licenses are limited term contracts and often not renewed so that new game designers can feel they have exclusive rights while their game is hot. One example of this trend is Heroes Evolved, which publicized the use of a Bruce Lee character via this trailer designed to mimic both comic book cell formatting and anime and action design, neither of which are present in the actual gameplay. The trailer features vocalizations reminiscent of Lee and features Lee's one-inch punch. Uh, the trailer showcases primarily static images and does not replicate the stillness movement dynamic Paul Bowman identified as key to Lee's style. Though I suppose one could argue that they are trying to convey movement with these moments of stillness. The actual gameplay is more manic and showcases one hits many fights in which Lee is the sole protagonist. Outside of the vocalizations and the yellow and black jumpsuit, there is little to distinguish this character regarding active gameplay. However, as I am clearly outside the target demographic for this game, maybe I'm just too old to see any distinctive martial arts form here. As I said, Dead Bruce Lee is not made for us old people. Unlike Heroes Evolved, a limited term licen uh, licensing agreement, BLE was actively involved in the Bruce Lee Enter the Game production. challenging to identify elements of their mission statement in the gameplay, the action design is demonstrably aligned with Lee's style as he bounces from foot to foot and remains in motion before throwing a series of hits. His stance is also more clearly defined and aligns well with Lee's fighting posture in his films. Lastly, regarding commercial partnerships, BLE famously and later virally teamed up with Nokia to sell a Bruce Lee themed phone in Asian markets. Wayne, are the, am I being recorded right now? No? Yeah. Uh, just, just, the just, just press that red just, line. Yeah, just press that red line, yeah. And it'll turn the hand off. There we go. I'm gonna do this again when I talk about Tom Cruise. <laughs> um, 
For this commercial, they used a Bruce Lee double with extensive ninjaku or nunchuck training and matched him digitally with an actor uh, swinging a ping pong paddle. The ball was computer generated in post-production as were the sound effects and Bruce Lee vocalizations. Long after this commercial's initial run in Asia, it resurfaced on YouTube and social media platforms. The commercial is so well designed with uh, any CG matching flaws hidden by the aged aesthetic that it has effectively convinced viewers of its authenticity. authenticity. The initial function of the commercial was to markedly as cool to consumers who are only partially aware of his work, helping to adjust the lower end of his dead Q score rating, familiarity. Commercial partnerships are only the first step toward D-Lab management, and the few I have shown here barely scrape the surface of Dead Bruce Lee's marketing rollout. BLE also teamed with China's CCTV to create a 50-part narrative TV series about Bruce Lee's life. You can watch it all dubbed into English on YouTube. It's a martial arts melodrama, a genre that should be familiar to anyone who has turned on a television set in China or has watched any Chinese television in the last 15 years. The action design is not worth discussing and it hurts me to watch, so I'm not showing any clips. The function of the series was to familiarize younger Chinese viewers with Lee's history, thus providing a wider audience for future BLE collaborations and commercial ventures in China. In preparation, BLE is pursuing 60 copyrights in China. The second means of post-mortem right of publicity is litigation against infringement. And BLE pursues perceived violators with a vigor that almost puts Tom Cruise's lawyers to shame. Almost. <laughs> Bruce Lee Enterprises has sued a theatrical production, a martial arts academy, a Chinese restaurant chain, Urban Outfitters, Target, various other clothing stores, and the production team behind Ip Man 3, just to name a very small few of the long list of defendants. Uh, in what some in this room may consider the most blatant abuse of power, Linda Lee and later BLE sued Dan Inosanto and forbade him from using Ji Kundo, Jun Fan, or Bruce Lee's name in any materials connected to the Insanto Academy of Martial Arts, even though he was trained to teach Jun Fan under Bruce Lee. BLE also sued Avela Incorporated, which sold licenses for Bruce Lee t-shirts to Urban Outfitters and Target. Avila had paid the film companies uh, for the rights, but not BLE for the rights. Uh, though the judgment on this was split, the case, uh, case offers some interesting notes. The defendants argued that the t-shirts featured characters that Bruce Lee played in his films, not his persona. They argued that these were not images of Bruce Lee. BLE, <laughs> conversely, argued <laughs> as a counterpoint that the t-shirts used Bruce Lee's persona his likeness and presence as a martial artist, not his films or the characters he portrayed therein. The judge found that they were both wrong. <laughs> Finally, in, in case any of you require a good laugh at this stage in the presentation, the defendants also argued that Linda Lee had no authority to say that Bruce Lee was an, quote, internationally known and acclaimed movie star and martial artist. <laughs> you couldn't prove that. <laughs> The Chinese restaurant chain, Real Kung Fu, has used the logo reminiscent of Bruce Lee for over 15 years. They registered this image as a trademark in China 19 years ago. The defendants have argued that they have the right to use the logo and that Bruce Lee 
recognized by international law is part of a common heritage of mankind associated with Kung Fu. Uh, I'm not sure we would dispute that. BLE is arguing that, is arguing, because the case is still going on, is arguing that the image is a representation of Bruce Lee and not intrinsically linked to Kung Fu as part of a shared global heritage. There's just so much. The more significant issues at play are that there is no current right to publicity for the dead in China, but there is a right to images linked to identity. The Chinese cultural and legal notion of identity is enmeshed in the concept of saving face. Due to both the relationship of face to family name and reputation and China's desire to use Bruce Lee as a model for young Chinese masculinity in opposition to the circulation of masculinities aligned with male K-pop stars, that's why they made a 50 episode series, this case could establish post the postmortem <laughs> right of publicity within the Chinese justice system just because of Chinese politics and what they want to do with Bruce Lee. <clears throat> Pegasus Motion Pictures, the creator of Ip Man, announced it had planned to use a computer-generated likeness of Bruce Lee for the, f uh, for the film. BLE promptly sent them a cease and desist notice, and Pegasus responded that they had acquired permission from Bruce Lee's brother, Robert Lee, who they thought had the rights. Uh, it is likely that BLE just wanted to tie up Ip Man, 3, Ip Man 3's legal team while the film was being made and uh, put during post-production, as it is com entirely questionable whether their rights extend to a computer-generated likeness. As SAG-AFTRA is currently, right now, on strike because they cannot even secure computer-generated likeness rights for living actors working right now. <clears throat> we are all likely aware of the controversial representation of Bruce Lee in Once Upon a Time in Hollywood and Tarantino's emphatic defense of his choice to depict Lee as a loudmouth braggart whom a white Hollywood stuntman could easily defeat. Most white stuntmen of the era who ruled Hollywood and blacklisted women and, or, and racial minorities from working in the profession had minimal martial arts training beyond throwing a punch for the camera. I assume that it is unintentional that the Cliff character throws Bruce Lee against the car via the use of a cheat cut. But truly, that is the only way most stuntmen of this era could hope to best Bruce Lee through the magic of editing. I hope you trust me, I know a little bit about stunts. Not bad, Cato. Try that again. reason. As a scholar who works almost exclusively on stunt work, the scene in which Bruce Lee is beaten is as laughable as it is offensive. That being said, Bruce Lee Enterprises did not sue Quentin, how could they not sue? Did not sue Quentin Tarantino or the studio because the postmortem right to publicity does not extend to fiction or nonfiction films, plays, musicals, podcasts, or television programs that feature the D-Lev. 
Shannon Lee opted to personally attack Tarantino via interviews and an op-ed in The Hollywood Reporter in which Lee pleaded, if only he'd take the name of Bruce Lee off his lips now. This was a heartfelt argument against the film from a loving daughter. Still, it was also a cunning response to the negative impact the film might have on BLE's branding efforts, defending Lee as, one, a martial artist, two, a Chinese man, three, a person of color, four, an Asian American, and five, as a 32-year-old. She was emphatic about that, too. Her statements address these representational truths about Bruce Lee while simultaneously aligning him with key dead Bruce Lee demographics. In conclusion, while Stephen Cho contends that there are two Bruce Lees, the Eastern embattled cultural Chinese nationalist and the Western postmodern narcissist, our martial arts studies grandmaster Paul Bowman, expands upon Cho's formula and offers a third Bruce Lee. The third Bruce Lee is aligned with the righteous struggles of post-colonial subjects, racial and ethnic minorities. This third Bruce Lee may not go so far as to allow the subaltern to speak, but certainly provides a potent visual analogy of subaltern rage. Examples from Lee's few films easily support this arithmetic. There are three live Bruce Lees, but dead Bruce Lee has been far more prolific. While it is possible to historicize the abundance of dead Bruce Lee into the amorphous before times of the 1980s General Electric Universal <coughs> uh, Studios rights phase and the post-2008 strategic Bruce Lee Enterprises endorsements and lawsuits, it is impossible to tally the sum of their expressions. Dead Bruce Lees abound in a geopolitical, but also apolitical, revolutionary, but also global capitalist, transnational, but also inherently national, corporeal, but also digital, multiverse of production, regulation, and consumption. Thank you. <laughs>